Welcome everybody. We have a brand new show on the Multimedia Men Podcast Network. It's been a long time in the making and I'm so excited that it's finally here. Our brand new show is called Fear and Loathing in Cinema. I'm Brian Kluger and I'm joined by the host with the most that I want to spend a vacation on a cruise line with, <laughs> Dan Moran, all the way in Austin, Texas. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Brian? Yes, this has been, what, three years? We've been trying to figure out some way to do a podcast together and talk about movies, and this finally was born. This was finally born. So I've got to tell all the listeners, if you don't know who Dan Moran is, well, you should. But Dan and I kind of hooked up several years ago um, through our very lovely, beautiful, sweet-smelling friend, Becca Pearlstein. <laughs> so Dan writes for Boomstick Comics. Becca writes for Boomstick Comics. And Becca, I guess, had an epiphany one day. She woke up and was like, wait, I have this amazing friend named Dan. I have this cool friend named Brian. I feel like they would live their lives together in harmony in film. And then, then she finally introduced us, like, virtually. And it's not until I think we met at a film festival in Austin that we met face to face, but we'd always talked. But now we're finally doing this podcast. Is that, is that what happened, Dan? Is that what yeah, happened? We were, we were email buddies, thanks to Becca. But the big thing that she put me in touch with you for is she would do these movie reviews for you. And we, we were attorneys together. So we'd see each other at the courthouse and she would be complaining or saying, oh, I have a movie that I was going to go see tonight, but it doesn't sound good. And it would be something, an action movie. <laughs> a uh, horror movie or something like that. And I'd be like, wait, you're seeing that tonight? What, what are you doing? She goes, well, I don't really want to. I got to tell my friend Brian. And I was like, I'll go. Cause Becca's not really into the superhero sci-fi action movies. Like, like I am. So it was really a, um, a perfect, a perfect storm of her being like, wait, you like to watch these quote unquote to her corny movies. Then I'll hook you up with Brian. And we got rolling um, virtually and been, you know, chatting for a couple of years now. No, we have, and it's been wonderful. I've realized Dan and I let's have this special bond, and I re I think that if we grew up together, we'd be inseparable, and we'd watch all the movies. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, it's very rare you find someone who loves "quote unquote" good cinema, but also appreciates just movies that you would be you should be embarrassed to tell people that you love, and that's kind of where the idea for this podcast came from, I guess, because I, I texted you when Nina said, have you thought about a podcast idea of something like, well, maybe it was good. And we go back and we look at panned movies and try to figure out if there's anything hopeful or nice to pull out of them. Right. And that, yeah, Dan had this great idea. And I know I've, I've like thought about it before, but we've never like implemented it. And it's such a great idea because it's so much fun. You know, when we're young, and we see a movie like in the early 90s or late 80s or something like that. And we're like, okay, we, or I remember seeing this movie and maybe it was great. Maybe it was terrible, but we got to revisit it now in 2020 or present day. And maybe uh, see if the nostalgia what wore off or just like, holy shit, what were they thinking? So I'm glad to do this. Yes, yes. I, I definitely don't want to say that it's some sort of original idea by me. I'm sure people go back and watch old movies all the time, but you know, try to put a somewhat positive spin on it. Was it good? Can we find anything to pull out of it that we enjoyed? Because at the end of the day, I think you and I both, we enjoy watching bad movies. We can't help it. We'll sit there and objectively say, this is a bad 
movie, but we enjoy <laughs> watching it. So why not talk about them? That's very true. And I, I've got to bring back Becca into the conversation from what you said that she doesn't like the action sci-fi stuff, but I'm pretty sure it's her that she loves Game of Thrones. And that's like all the action and sci-fi and horror and sex that you can want. So her saying not wanting to see something else, it boggles my mind. <laughs> can't explain her, but also that, that, that show had a, um, a dragon queen. That's true. Went that's around true. And just tried to take over the world, which I think, I mean, is Becca's goal. So, I mean, she saw a lot of herself in that. So maybe it's specific <laughs> to um, women with dragons who just, who just take what they want. I'm just very happy that uh, I would send Becca to these action movies. <laughs> that just makes me happy. <laughs> oh, I can't even imagine. I think one of them was like Pacific Rim Uprising. Oh, part two, yes. And I was like, I'd, I'd watch that. And she was like, what the hell? It's like the picture he sent me is a giant robot with like I don't even know what's going on I was like I, I will watch that thing to death I will watch it <laughs> <laughs> all right all right no, I, I like that so that's how kind of Dan and I got hooked up and we've been together for 40 years now um, but let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Dan let, let you get you to know the listeners and the listeners get to know you man where uh what was the first memory of you really falling in love with a movie? Oh, easiest, easiest question. I remember it like it was yesterday. It's like a documentary in my mind. We, my family's from the New England area. So we used to vacation up to New Hampshire. And on a rainy day, if you go vacation for a week, we'd go to the movie theater at the old little Concord movie theater mall up in New Hampshire, near where we'd have a house. And it was in um, Jurassic Park. And my mom and thought that it might be too scary for me, but you're up there with all your uncles and some older cousins and, you know, like the tough guy uncles, like how I am to my nephews today. <laughs> You'll be perfectly fine. And I went into that movie and legitimately I became a dinosaur freak. I, I was obsessed with how it was shot. I remember getting toys and like reenacting like raptors and T-Rexes fighting and being like, this couch cushion is clearly a hill and we need a helicopter <laughs> to fly over it so we can try to break this fight up and get them back to their cages. Just that movie changed my whole outlook on those kinds of movies and is really a, a formative moment as far as going to movie theaters, which I truly miss. But that was the first real, I went to that movie theater. I got that movie on VHS tape and wore it out. I mean, I watched that movie so many times. So that, that came out in 1993, the summer of 93, I believe. How old were you then? I was eight. Okay. Eight? Yeah. Eight? And yeah, I was I, eight. Sorry, I don't yeah. know my own age. Part of that, I'm not math. So there's another way to get to know me. <laughs> so I, I was 12 uh, and I remember loving it. So that movie I think is the movie that I've seen the most in theaters. I think I saw it nine times in the theater with a collection of like friends and my father here in Dallas. And that, I mean, yes, I, I will agree with you. That movie really <laughs> struck I mean, me. It, it changed my whole outlook. I mean, I still see movies through the lens of Jurassic Park. So that was 93, right? Right. So you look back on 93, that movie can come on right now and it is just as good 
gripping and just as fascinating with special effects as Avengers Endgame, which cost $250 million and came out last year. Yeah. Like the, the special effects hold up on a 1993 movie. And as we'll talk about today with speed, sometimes special effects don't hold up as well. And so that movie just is, it's transcendent. And a lot of that is Spielberg, but yes, that movie is the thing that propelled me on this movie. Um, affectionately known as my movie nerd journey. So do you, uh, do you have other favorite films that, you know, kind of like you think about all the time? Uh, something like, so Jurassic Park was a big influence of you getting into movies, but is there, are there other favorites, I guess? Oh yeah, I'm, I can go through all the, uh, I love, you know, I, I think Jaws, I probably, how you said you've seen Jaws. I know I'm on a Spielberg kick right now, but I've seen Jaws numerous times. In fact, we uh, went and saw it on the water. Was I remember two- that, yeah. Four- for Boomstick, my wife and I, who had never seen it before, I made her watch it on an inflatable tube for the first time ever on the lake, watch Jaws. Um, so Jaws was a big one. I love, I really tend to go towards directors, but some more recent ones, Mad Max Fury Road. I still consider that to be the best picture winner until I see something that is <laughs> entertaining <laughs> me better. Better than that, start to finish as a whole experience. I, I love that one. Um, Fincher, I love Zodiac. I love, uh, I love parts of Fight Club. I finally got around to appreciating Social Network. Um, you know, Alien, Aliens. Honestly, all the, we may actually talk about some of the later Aliens movies for this right. podcast. <laughs> all those Alien movies. I'm a big director guy. I, I tend to go through them like book series. I just, if I find a director I like, I just, I consume them. Um, okay no that's great yeah so uh being an attorney are do you find a proclivity of watching uh movies about law or tv shows about law like boston legal or uh or like the like the firm (laughs) okay yeah and i'm curious yeah do you i enjoy them all Okay, good. It's probably how doctors are whenever they watch like Grey's Anatomy and they just are like, that is not what would happen in an emergency room. This is so unbelievable. I get that it's entertaining, but they get frustrated. So that's exactly how I am when I watch lawyer shows. Sadly, the attorney movie that gets it closest to what being a defense attorney is like is Lincoln Lawyer with Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> Wonderful, yes. <laughs> he doesn't trust anyone. But he's friendly with people on the other side. He's waiting for people to pay him. The judges know the score before things happen. I mean, it's just much more, sadly, much more realistic. But that's a, that's a whole other topic. But yeah, not a big lawyer TV show guy at, at all. And my wife um, and mother-in-law are actually really big into the show Suits. And they were like, you got to watch Suits. you got to watch Suits. It's about attorneys. And I, and I, I just could never get into it. I, don't, I, I assume doctors are exactly the same way or maybe soldiers who watch you know military tv shows are just like i can't do it because it's not my experience (laughs) (laughs) right so that's i'm always curious on stuff like that just because you know i love 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 the show boston legal so much with um uh what's his name william shatner and uh james spader and it is you know knowing a bunch of lawyers and formally married to a lawyer, they could not get into it because they couldn't get past like it was a show and like, 
oh my God, so this crime happened, they get a lawyer and the court dates the next day, you know, they're in trial. Uh, and they're like, that's not how it works. It's like, it's like a year and a half. But I mean, I was like, yeah, right. Well, but like uh, the show is funny itself. Um, but I, I always, you know, talking with you and Becca is like, you know, what, when you see these, are you objectively watching it for entertainment? Or are you like, oh God, this would never happen. <laughs> the scariest thing was um, talking about shows that professionals watch was when that survey came out of all the politicians who said that the most realistic uh, political show was Veep. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? That actually makes a lot of sense. They walk around, they fake smile, and then they just curse each other out behind the scenes. That actually worked for me. So I, that always made me laugh. If they did an attorney show like that, I would, because Becca was on the opposite side of me for a long time. She was a prosecutor and I was a defense attorney. Right. Going back to her. So, but I mean, we were friendly. Like she came to my, my, uh, my wife's baby shower and stuff. But the next day I'd be like, you're screwing over my client. Like, that's <laughs> stuff, you know? So, yeah. Oh, that's good. All right. So sticking in that same realm, uh, I always ask this of everyone because I think it's a fun question. Um, what are some of your favorite scenes in movies that always stick with you? Uh, um. Let's get, I'll move aside the, some of the obvious ones, you know, the, the monologue from Jaws and all those sorts of things. Let's, I think that the scene of Jake Gyllenhaal in the basement in Zodiac, when he goes down there, is such a perfectly crafted, terrifying, sweaty, hair standing up on your arm scene. Because even though it was a true story and I had, and I, I know what happened to the actual guy who Jake Gyllenhaal is playing. It was played in such a fascinating way to me that it jumped off the screen when I saw that movie in theaters. And even today, if I'm cruising around Netflix or I'm just bored, I'll be like, oh, I'll watch, you know, let me just fast forward about an hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes into Zodiac and just watch this scene. That's, that scene is just perfection. Him trying to unlock the doors when he's all wet from the rain and the guy comes up and, unlocks it for him, the sounds above him, the creaking boards, the light. Any movie that has a basement where the string light and it just swings in front of you and it makes, fades different things in light, that, I think that scene is just peak creepy that, um, that I, I go back to a lot of just building the tension with the character you care about. It's a big oh, one. Good, oh, I, I love Zodiac. Yeah, and then a huge nerd one. Um, the first, the first Lord of the Rings, which I consider to be the, the best Lord of the Rings movie, the entire Horn of Gondor scene. If we're counting that as a scene, I know it's a bunch of mini scenes, but when um, the minute Aragorn tells Frodo he has to go on his own and all the orcs attack, that final like 14 minutes of them just trying to escape that entire battle, I just, I, I bow down to Peter Jackson the way that he used that much action with nine characters to give us all the space. We knew where everyone was. We understood the geography. We understood the action, the stakes, everything for a climax um, always sticks with me whenever I watch the climaxes of some other movies. I'm like, ah, oh, I don't even know where that person is in comparison to the other one. But you think back on Lord of the Rings and I, I knew exactly where everyone was because he was so particular and specific with framing that scene. He really was. And I love the use of like some of the, like the aerial shots that was on a track through the trees and like, like it, was, it was well done. <laughs> yes. yes. 
those are two of my big ones that um, would remove from the, you know, the obvious label. <laughs> I like those. I like those a lot. Uh, yeah, man, Dan Moran. We've got this new show, Fear and Loathing and Cinnamon, as Dan mentioned uh, as the each episode, we're going to pick a movie that, uh, you know, came out a while ago and try to dissect it. Does it hold up now? Is it, is, are we going to be loathing this movie? Are we, are we scared <laughs> to watch it again? Are we going to go on a, a drug fueled trip down memory lane and try to figure out what just happened? <laughs> is that the kind of describe the show? That That's the plan. And, and we're, we're gonna hunt. We're gonna hunt for some movies, and we're gonna find some good ones on here. Ones that we know you've seen. Ones we know that you may have not even thought about in years, but you were like, "That was a huge thing for the summer when I was in freshman year of college or freshman year of high school." They're gonna be movies, you know, um, for the most part, and we're gonna get down to find out if there's anything good in them, or if you just need to fear and loathe them for the rest of their lives. Right. So yes, buckle up. We're heading into bat country with our briefcase full of movies and drugs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're going to be talking about speed two, cruise control. which came out June 13th, 1997, which if you're doing the math is about 23 years ago, almost to the day. Uh, and, you know, released by 20th Century Fox, um, the, directed by Jan DeBont, uh, the, basically the same guy who directed and produced the original Speed. We'll get to that in a second. Um, and then bringing back a, only a couple of the people from the original one. Um, this movie, I, I forgot, is over two hours long. It's, it runs at 126 minutes. Um, it was made for around $150 million and barely made that much money uh, back. So it was considered a box office failure. But speed to cruise control. So <clears throat> if we go back in time to 1994 when uh, Jan DeBont made Speed, the original Speed with Keanu Reeves and, um, and Sandra Bullock and Dennis Hopper and Jeff Daniels, uh, we saw this you know police officer get on a bus that couldn't go uh, faster than 50 miles, or couldn't slow down uh, past 50 miles an hour. Great movie. Yeah, great movie. It, Speed is it, a great movie. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. Um, it won uh, two Oscars, <laughs> and it was made for thirty million dollars, and it ended up making over three hundred and fifty million dollars. And of course, being Hollywood, you're just like, holy shit, we have to go back. And uh, they did, they did, and we have um, we have Speed Two Cruise Control. So, so within a sentence or two, Dan. Does Speed 2 hold up some 23 years later, or did it hold up back then? Oh, well, it obviously didn't hold up back then because no one wanted to see it then. I mean, you just read it was a box office bomb. They couldn't even get people in there, even with Sandra Bullock. Um, so I don't think it holds up that well at all. I think that it seems, with the 2020 hindsight vision here, it seems like a ham-fisted attempt 
by 20th Century Fox, and who can blame them? They're out there to make money, but they thought they had a franchise on their hands, and they threw everything they could at the wall. And uh, we'll get into some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, but it seems like they had a um, hostage <laughs> as a director who wanted to do his own thing. And unfortunately, the movie's a, um, the movie's a mess. Right, right. So, you know, I remember watching it in the theater because, of course, I'm going to go see Speed 2, Electric Boogaloo. I, I mean, Control. I saw Speed 2 in the theater. Who yeah. didn't? Yeah, who didn't? Uh, uh, box office bomb, I guarantee you, I may have seen this movie twice in the theater. <laughs> he was 20% of that box office, Dan, there. And so I think that, you know, did, did it hold it? When I, did I like it back then? No, not really, because it was really silly. Watching it yesterday for the first time in a long time, you know, I kind of appreciated a lot more about it than I remember doing just because of the whole spectacle of the whole thing. You know, if you count out like some of the acting and the dialogue for sure, but that movie we'll get into it. Shooting wise is like a Marvel and uh, it looks insanely good. Uh, like from a visual perspective, does it hold up though? Like this is a movie talking about like, this is like mid late nineties. And if you remember mid to late nineties movies, action ones, some are good. A lot of them are bad. So does it hold up? No. <laughs> However, I think that in a way of like maybe a mystery science theater 3000 or riff tracks. Yes, for sure. Um, that that's kind of how it is. So in this, in our brief synopsis of Speed 2, if you don't remember <laughs> <laughs> Speed 2, so uh, Annie Porter, the the bus driver, you know, Sandra Bullock from the original movie, she's back again, and uh, she is about to go on a vacation with her boyfriend, Jason Patrick, uh, who plays an officer named Alex Shaw, who's, you know, like kind of like a daredevil. And they are going on a cruise. They're going on a cruise to the Bahamas, the Caribbean. And they, he was going to propose to her on the ship, whatever. And they're about to have fun. They're having a good time. And then Willem Dafoe is on the ship. And he plays the villain of the movie. And for reasons that are just kind of ridiculous, ridiculous and over the top he wants <laughs> to kill everybody on the ship and crash the boat and um so what a lot of people thought about this cruise is like okay speed had this fast moving fast-paced bus that couldn't go slower than 50 miles an hour what hair you have a cruise that is going like 10, 15 miles an hour. It's slow as molasses, as Arrested Development would like to say. Yeah. And there's just like not a lot of tension. And there's just so many ridiculous groups of people in this movie that are side characters. Oh my goodness. So a lot, So that's kind of the movie. But being over two hours long, it just, it just keeps going. And it's drawn out to a magnificent proportion where it's like just end and oh, <laughs> you, you touched on Willem Dafoe being the villain but I think we could spend an hour talking about trying to figure out what his plan was I mean it was it was to crash a ship and steal some jewels but also escape and embarrass a company and cyber terrorism <laughs> he, had, <laughs> he had four different things going on on this ship at the same time 
Yeah, none of it made sense, really. Like, it just, it none of it made sense. Because, like, partly he, like, said, like, it's almost like the Joker. And he kind of uh, has an aura about himself of playing, you know, the Joker from the Batman series because he's just like that crazy. And he never gives like a real reason as to why he's doing what he does while he's laughing and smiling and like that, you know, maniacal laughter. It was, is that true? Great hair. Yeah. That's my best comment. on <laughs> Great, great hair. Will yeah, I think he took that role because he's, they started talking about this movie going into production so early. He was like, can I grow my hair out? And he just has a glorious villain mane. I mean, top-notch, beautiful vacation hair. But yeah, no, he is he is the prototype for Heath Ledger's Joker walking around on this ship for half the movie. <laughs> you just look at him and it, there's a lot of... I, I, I don't know this for, for certain. Heath Ledger and Christopher Nolan may have watched Speed 2 whenever they were coming up with the costume choices <laughs> for the Joker. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, so a little bit behind the scenes on how Speed 2 got greenlit. So, of course, the movie Speed with Keanu Reeves just – it it did, it just outperformed, you know, everybody was getting the haircut of Keanu Reeves in the first movie, just it, it did really well. So kind of like after the first week of Speed being in theaters, they greenlit a second one. And uh, so- No one was attached. No, no, no one was attached. Right, right. And so, and then even Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves didn't have it in their contracts to star in any sequel. Right. Uh, but the director and the, co- and the production company envisioned them being married and going on another adventure type of thing. But um, I guess uh, DeBont, the director, had hundreds upon hundreds of ideas pitched to him and script ideas sent to him. And he was like, fuck you, I had a dream where we crashed into like an island with a cruise. So we're going with that. And you got to think like Hollywood, you're just like, what is this guy doing? He's mad with power. Like, I mean, what do you think about this? The interview I read with Devant was legitimately him talking about all these pitches and I'm reading some of the pitches and some of them sound awesome. Some of them sound like great movies. There was one that was going to have a plane flying over the Andes or something. Yes. Uh, that couldn't drop or couldn't go above 11,000 feet. And like the lowest part of that mountain range is like 10,500 feet. <laughs> so it would be like a pilot. And I was like, I'm in on that movie. That sounds incredible. There were so many pitches that sounded good. And it sounded like DeBont kind of re- didn't want to make this movie the way he talks about it. So he legitimately says in an interview, I had a dream about a boat hitting an island. So I figured I'd work everything around that to make sure a boat crashes into an island, which is, to me, just chef's kiss on Hollywood. To make a sequel surrounded by a director's dream. Well, you've got to think, like, he must have had so much power to override execs and other people to like make his vision and you know the company was always like okay speed one did this well let's see what he's got well he did twister yeah he did twister he did speed twister and then they give him speed two they were hoping to go three for three that's what they were hoping for as far as entertainment value and box office returns and 
Didn't happen. <laughs> did not happen. <laughs> it did not. No, we got the we got speed to cruise control. Oh, oh. my god. So so th- they were making that and then they were trying to cast because Keanu Reeves uh was not gonna do it. He read the script, he was like, fuck you, I'm out, I'm gonna do the devil's advocate, uh, which is way better. Way um better. way better. And then he he didn't do that, and I think there was some bad blood between Keanu and the, like the director of the company. They were like back and forth about like, oh, he didn't want to do it because he's not getting paid enough, or he just didn't want to. I was like, no, of course he didn't want to do it. It's a terrible script. So somehow they got Sandra Bullock back, and the film. Well, wait, wait, wait! Tell them how they got Sandra Bullock back because they paid her half of what they were going to pay Keanu Reeves, and promised that they would produce her passion project, Hope Floats. <laughs> The following year like Keanu Reeves said I'm not doing this movie oh why Keanu because I read the script was one of the actual quotes attributed to him and they went back Sandra Bullock said well if he's not doing it I want out and they were like hey here's an extra five million dollars and we'll produce hope floats which if you look at that that's a pretty damn good deal I would I heck of a deal I would take that deal if I wanted my passion project and you know it's funny in uh, what is it? A Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back. Uh, they kind of allude to that in the uh, the Goodwill Hunting Two sequence, where Matt and Ben, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, are talking like, "You got to do like the action movies to get your passion project done. You got to do it." Yeah. So this is like true life happening. Yeah. <laughs> Why they were doing Goodwill Hunting too? <laughs> Applesauce. Yeah. Um, so uh so yeah that's how um sandra bullock came on so yes she's she's, she's getting paid like 10 12 million dollars now she's they're gonna do hope floats for her yes i'm in little did she know that she'd have to like go overboard all the pun intended for this movie <laughs> <laughs> so they got sandra bullock on and now they're like holy shit how are we gonna replace keanu reeves like after speed he's like on a whirlwind of crazy awesome movies right. and so like how, who are we going to replace so the filmmakers thought oh my goodness christian slater billy zane john bon jovi oh. <laughs> right now right now gun to my head give me billy zane and sandra bullock it's speed to cruise control and i think we're not even doing this <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and I would hope, because I'm looking at Billy Zane, I'm looking at Sandra Bullock, they could be brother and sister. And hopefully they would add jokes into that, like, are y'all brother and sister? <laughs> it would be like a running gag. Uh, but so... Matthew McConaughey, too. Yeah, so, oh, I guess everybody turned it down. And then Sandra Bullock, I guess, suggested Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey was like, nope, not doing this. Also read the script. Yeah, I also read the script, which uh, prompted Sandra to be like, how about Jason Patrick? I saw this movie After Dark, my sweet. He's pretty good. And I'm like, dude, Jason Patrick's the older brother to Corey Haim in Lost Boys. You know, wonderful movie. Yeah. <laughs> so we got Jason Patrick, who might I add, who... We can go into, we'll probably go into the homoerotic tones in this movie, but that dude is basically shirtless the whole movie. <laughs> oh, oh, he, he, he took this as what I would do if I got cast in a movie. Give me a trainer, give me a nutritionist, and get me in shape 
in the next six months and just let me walk around with my shirt off. Like every scene, he must have just been like, be a real shame if this tuxedo shirt got wet and you could see how much I've been working out. That seemed to be his <laughs> go-to acting style. And so, yeah, no, it's so good. And so I guess in an interview, Jason Patrick stated that he never saw the first speed and he had never in- intended in seeing it, <laughs> which is really funny to me. I, people who are in the industry who say stuff, it just, it always makes me laugh. They're all so brilliant, but they're all so weird. He's starring in a sequel to a movie and you're like, hey, Jason, what's the first speed about? And he's like, no, I've never even seen it. Like, you may have been able to convince him it was about Formula One racing or something because he legitimately had no idea what he was getting into. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, it, it, it's really funny. And so moving on to the next villain uh, that was Willem Dafoe, they actually tried to get Gary Oldman to do the villain. Um because, uh, you know, they wanted somebody great and with prominence of an actor. So Gary Oldman turned it down, and he went on to do be the villain in? Air Force One. Yeah. <laughs> great movie, great villain, great choice by Gary Oldman. Oh, it's so good. So goddamn good. And so we get, but we get Willem Dafoe, who... It, when you watch him in this movie, you're like, ooh, I see a little bit of Green Goblin in there. I see a little bit of like this superhero-y villain type of arc here. Oh, he was, he was having fun. I don't want to say anything mean about the Defoe performance because I feel like he knew what movie he was in. He knew what he was doing. He had the long hair, the flowy shirts. I mean, he was a second-rate Bond villain. You could convince me right now that this was a throwaway script for a... Um, James Bond movie with Pierce Brosnan that they just like threw off the back lot somewhere. I mean, <laughs> Willem Dafoe had leeches, was sick with an illness, was fired by a company for being sick with the illness. So his plan is to hack into the, the ship's mainframe, make it crash, but also steal millions of dollars of jewels. <laughs> that, that's a job with him. He was a jack of all trades of villainous. They were like, yeah. what can we have him do? Fuck him. Let's just like throw in the kitchen sink. He wants jewels, wants to rob, he wants to kill, he wants to embarrass a big company. Like, we don't know what we're doing. We're just going to do everything. And they gave him <laughs> gadgets. Like, this is pre 9 11. And rather than just him hiding smoke bombs and technology in his bags, he had very particular, elaborate golf clubs. <laughs> yes. That he could unscrew and hack into and we're hiding all this stuff in it. And I was just sitting there going, this man belonged as the villain of like, the world is not enough or tomorrow never dies. No, it really is like a Bond villain. He's <laughs> a Bond villain. Oh, it's so good. All right. So we've got Willem Dafoe. And then in the movie, I guess they wanted to go funnier with it. So they cast a few like, uh, comedians, including Tim Conway, who's a legendary comedian who plays the running gag of like, I guess, uh, Sandra Bullock's character just can't drive, even though she drove a bus perfectly, but she just can't fucking drive at all. And so Tim Conway is the driving instructor who just is scared out of his mind because she can't, she can't turn, she crashes into shit. She, I mean, it doesn't make sense. It, it's in today's movie they would talk about how sandra bullock has ptsd and the Mm -hmm. opening would be her talking to a therapist about how hey remember when i was driving that bus yeah (laughs) and all this stuff blew up and all these people died 
well, anyway, I had a rough relationship and now I'm scared driving. But in the mid 90s, it was just funnier to show her like crashing into fruit carts and cutting people off on the highway. Yeah, no, it was basically like a scene from Clueless and like how she was like she couldn't drive. <laughs> <laughs> like talking and pointing and like, oh God. Oh. Uh, so it was, that was really bad. And then you have like, both Dan and I forgot. We texted each other while we were watching the movie. We're like, holy shit, it's Tamura Morrison, who is... Django Fett. Django Fett. He's one of the, uh, he's one of the, the ship boat's captains, basically. Giuliano he plays. And he just shows up. I'm like, holy shit, it's Django. Doesn't look like he's aged a day. Yeah, no, he has not. 23 years ago, it must be that lovely New Zealand air or something because he looks the exact same in, um, oh, what was he just in? Oh, he was just doing interviews for all the new Star Wars stuff going on and there were pictures of him and he, he almost looks identical to what he looked like in 1997 on a boat. I mean, right? it's amazing. Right, and then you have uh, Bo Spenson in the movie and then in addition to bringing uh, Sandra Bullock back, they brought one other cast member back, and that was Glenn Plummer, who played Maurice. In the first Speed movie, he was the black guy who um, Keanu Reeves commandeered his Jaguar. <laughs> well, then he shows up at the very end of this movie with his yacht, or his, his like, pontoon boat that costs 150 grand. Yes. <laughs> he's, like, the same character. And I'm just like, how did this happen? Did, I guess they got like a, such a good response from that character, but they waited till like the last 10 minutes of the movie to bring him in. Oh, and they throw in the throwaway line where he's like, oh, LAPD, you're always stealing my good stuff. And I was just, <laughs> my eyes almost fell out of the back of my head for where, whatever screen test was like, you know who we need? The black gentleman from the first one that had his car stolen by Keanu Reeves. Yeah, and now we have to have his boat stolen. Yeah, leave the poor guy alone. And then he's, oh my God, it's just such a, it's such a bad script. So if you're wondering if they mention Keanu Reeves' character in the, this second movie, they do in one sentence. <laughs> well, they mention him a lot in passing, but yes, in one sentence, they... They clear that really quickly. I mean, the opening scene with Sandra Bullock driving like a crazy person um, around is essentially catching you up. Oh, my relationship didn't work out with Jack because Jack was too this and everything was so unpredictable, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I'm with a new guy now and he's real down to earth. Meanwhile, she's running old women off the road and knocking <laughs> cars off highways. And they spent the first, what was it? I wrote down, it was like seven or eight minutes of her explaining to that poor um, driver's ed teacher her whole life story. Yeah, no, she did. I, I, <laughs> and that gets into where like the over two hour runtime for this movie, that should have been a quick 80 minutes. <laughs> yeah. It just oh, yeah. keeps going um, because where the movie starts off, like it, it takes a little while like for it to get going because you have this first scene and then they're like, okay, we're going on the cruise there. And then they're immediately getting on the cruise and then they're having a good time. And then slowly, but surely you see like, Oh, Willem Dafoe's crazy. And then you see the ridiculousness of Jason Patrick's character trying to like feel him out. Like, 
well, he brought his golf clubs, but he ain't watching golf. I'm like, what's happening? Why, why? He's not even watching golf on TV. There's something up about him. Oh, I, yes. I couldn't believe how they tried to like plant the seeds of Jason Patrick's character being like a great judge of character. Like he knew this guy was trouble because he wasn't watching sports at the bar. So he's got to be a bad guy. And I was, I was sitting there like, there's, there's a thousand people on this ship. Come on, guys. Come on. Right? No, that's, uh, that, that's exactly how it is. And so as time goes, you kind of meet the other, you know, co-stars of the film who all have their quirkiness to it. And then uh, Willem Dafoe's character, Geiger, you know, maybe H.R. Geiger, I don't know, just sounds like a villainous foreign name, basically. Uh, he starts to sabotage the ship by cyber warfare, coming up to people, the captains, you know, all of this stuff. Even the poor, um, the poor, like, uh, little uh, room server gets beaten. <laughs> remind, remind you, his, the way he's sabotaging this boat is he's setting off fake fire alarms. <laughs> he's taking away control of the engine. So it's not even like a fun way. He's like, aha, I'm going to make them think this whole ship's on fire. And also, I'm going to lay off some smoke grenades. And on top of that, I'm going to make this ship go fast. (laughs) Yes. And by fast, we mean like 30 miles an hour. (laughs) And so this goes on like cat and mouse trying to up one another for like a long time. And then so it all kind of culminates where... Willem Dafoe escapes with uh, Annie, with Sandra Bullock on like a pair of jet skis, Sea-Doo's. And then I guess his plan is to kind of gear the ship to crash into an oil tanker. And after that, well, it takes like almost an hour for this to happen. It's kind of like that Austin Powers scene where the guy's trying to tell like the steam a roller to stop and it just yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like that it really is. and then after that the oil tanker it's going to crash into an island which also takes another like 30 minutes <laughs> and then it doesn't stop there we've got to save sandra bullock from a plane oh my god it just it, it never ends it so was, yeah land sea and air speed two had chases on all of them they went all out they did. So now I want to talk about scenes that didn't make sense. And the one that sticks out to me is when, uh, <laughs> I guess like the really final climactic thing is where Willem Dafoe's character, his little, uh, little prop plane lands <laughs> on the very tippy top of an antenna of this gigantic oil tanker, which causes the entire tanker to explode. It's kind of like one of those B movies where like a car kind of fender bender somebody and then the cars both explode. <laughs> that felt like that happened here. <laughs> Brian, I don't want to suggest that maybe you weren't watching the movie closely enough, but I rewound that scene twice <laughs> to try to figure out if maybe when the, the cruise liner scraped along the side of the oil tanker, it let oil out. So I was like supposed to know that this was an explosion. No, none of that was established. It was literally Willem Dafoe's ship on top of an antenna with some fluids leaking. And then he blew up an oil tanker bigger than two cruise ships. Yes. <laughs> blew it up to the sky. Yes. 
It's a, it's a gigantic explosion, and it doesn't make sense at all. <laughs> I mean, just from I mean, we're 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 splitting hairs here on speed to cruise control physics, but there was nothing to suggest this oil tanker should have exploded, other than our boy John DeBont wanted to blow up an oil tanker. He had a dream the night before and said, "I'm blowing up an oil tanker today." Well, how are you going to do it, John? I pictured a plane landing on top of an antenna. <laughs> Not just a plane, like a little, like two-seater plane. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and it was like, it seems like 50 feet above the oil tanker. So. <laughs> that, that easily for climaxes, I'm pulling it up. For climaxes, it's one of the most ridiculous final explosions or exclamation points on an action sequence that I can personally remember. And I forgot about it until I watched it yesterday three times because I rewound <laughs> it to make sure I wasn't missing something. Right, right. And so, you know, leading up to that climactic explosion, it seemed like nothing went right with the cruise where like things were flooding, they couldn't uh, drop an anchor uh, or an anchor fell off. And then not only did Jason Patrick have to manually turn the anchor or whatever or manually turn the engines but he had to have help because I, <laughs> like every 15 seconds you got to crank this thing to turn it <laughs> you, you can't stop turning this but also who are you again you're the guy who takes pictures on the cruise ship oh so you know your way around do you know how to turn a cruise ship like there was in, in the whole time you've got um Django Fett over the loudspeaker explaining to him exactly what he needs to do but half the scenes jason patrick's underwater yeah while Django's explaining it to him so i was like oh he's explaining this to me which by proxy means that jason patrick either had this explained to him or this is the director's version of explaining it to me so i don't feel stupid but really it just made the whole thing feel stupid no i caught that and like you know when they're both about to be submerged underwater he goes wait 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 and they're like wait 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 what 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 <laughs> don't forget and it's like what is happening here don't forget with this very elaborate giant cruise ship here's the physics and the, the technical engineer <laughs> behind it that you need to know by listening to me underwater Right, right. Okay, so now for the, the the scene that really sticks out in people's minds is the crews crashing into the island, which, if you think about it, and most of you might not remember, but this actually happened. They spent 25% of the entire movie's budget to make this a realistic practical effect. They built an actual city. They built this cruise line and they, uh, they built this cruise that like, you know, was only like half done and they actually crashed it into the Island. This was not CG. And I think this is goddamn amazing. <laughs> I, if we're going to take anything positive away from this movie, it's the fact that they built a city out of balsa wood painted it, spent like 40 million dollars on the front quarter of a cruise ship and just rammed it into this fake city and they could only do it once yep because all that balsa wood cracks and so reading about how they did it i mean i've been making fun of him but i tip my hat to the director on that one he had a dream of ramming a boat into an island and he fully realized his dream he did. And I read somewhere that I guess 
a hurricane hit and it destroyed some of the set. So they had to redo it, <laughs> like re yeah. rebuild some of the set. Because I mean, if you're filming in the summertime, you're going to have hurricanes. So I think that was, that's pretty funny. And so that scene, there is, you know, kind of like that Spielbergy moment of, you know, a little kid with a stuffed animal looking out a window. Oh, mommy, there's a big boat. And the, that ship crashes right into it. Like, <laughs> does the, but we don't see if the kid got killed or anything. So, and that was one thing I definitely wanted to talk about. This movie has some stakes in it. Like, there are some real life or death situations and every single one of them is played for comedic effect, which was not part of Speed 1. The first Speed, no. every life or death scene was like, oh man, this is really serious. And this one, you have a runaway ship running over rich people's sailboats, running into fishing boats, and they keep cutting back to the, the cabin and the room service boy and like one of the other sailors are just cracking jokes about, it. oh, maybe it'll slow us down. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, like the, all the boats. Yes. Like, oh, my God. They are ramming people. <laughs> they're running people over, and they're like, all right, we hit another family on a ship, but guess what? It slowed us down another knot. And I was sitting there going, okay, and cracking jokes about it. I'm not sitting here saying it has to be serious, but there was definitely – a tone issue with how this how they played out this entire ship crash for sure it is it doesn't make sense and I, we don't even see these people anymore and i would say a lot of them died because if a cruise is coming and even if you jump out of the water in time you're gonna be sucked under and you're not gonna survive well let's not let, let's also not not forget that none of this had to happen <laughs> right <laughs> None of this had to happen. No, uh, I mean, I, I, sorry. There's my evergreen statement for Speed 2 Cruise Control. None of this had, had to happen. happen. <laughs> but well, we got it. And then to add uh, another layer of, you know, like that little kid looking at a boat saying, Mommy, there's a boat. There's a little dog that jumps into a really nice car and it, the anchor falls onto the car, crushing it. But then the dog just jumps out, wags its tail. and <laughs> Oh, that classic... That classic um, physical comedy bit of the ship was going too fast, crashed onto land, and when it was finally stopped on land, the anchor dropped onto the most expensive car <laughs> on the entire island. I mean, I don't remember specifically, but I, I hope and pray that nobody actually chuckled out loud at that scene in 1997 <laughs> in the theater, because I was like, man, this is bad. This no, is no, so it's... Bad. So bad. And then like the guy, the, the expensive car, the guy comes out and he just goes, my car. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Oh, no, no, none no. of it makes sense. So, so, oh my goodness. The the worst scene to me or the, the scene that jumps out the most to me that I was laughing the hardest at is when Geiger, Willem Dafoe, kills the actual ship's captain. Yes, yes, yes. He uses, so the way this is, plays out is these are swivel lights on the outdoor railing of a cruise ship. So if you haven't seen the movie, which I hope you have if you're listening, or you're going to go watch it right now, the swivel lights swivel out over the water and swivel back towards the It's thing. It's kind of like the equivalent of the Pixar mascot. <laughs> yes, yes. Geiger kills the captain with the Pixar mascot. Exactly. And for some reason, this captain tries to get to Willem Dafoe 
in front of these lights. And Willem Dafoe just kind of like keeps swinging it at him and pushing him <laughs> and hurts him and then throws him overboard. But for a good 30 seconds, he's having a philosophical argument about his experience working for the cruise line company while he's beating <laughs> this man with the hopping lamp from Pixar. <laughs> it's an obnoxious scene that has no bearing on anything. And then the captain's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I don't know you. What, what is this? I'm a ship's captain. I don't own the cruise line. They pay me to come drive it just like they paid you to build it. Why are you killing me? This makes no sense. <laughs> oh, speed two cruise control. Love it. Why? Love it. Uh, it, oh, my goodness. Yeah. So what would you say the best scene and the worst scene is? <sighs> the worst scene for me is the entire opening scene introducing Alex Shaw riding on the red Ducati motorcycle, chasing after a box truck that's maximum speed has to be 55 miles per hour on straightaways. But it's like cruising through the California hills with fake gateway computers falling out of the back <laughs> of it and him just swerving around them and sliding his bike at the at the box truck to get it to stop while all the LAPD and SWAT team is also trying to get this box truck to stop. I thought it was, of all the corny quote unquote action scenes, it was terrible. I was, it was so bad the way it was set, staged, the way it concluded and the way that it introduced him. I immediately thought Alex Shaw was lame. It's like Keanu wouldn't have done any of this. Right? My first thought, I was like, I would have stayed with him. And it's funny you mentioned that because Jason Patrick, I guess somehow DeBont had a way with actors that he convinced everybody to do their own stunts where Jason Patrick did all of his own stunts and I guess almost died during the Ducati stunt because he crashed it and went 30 feet in the air. <laughs> he did all his own stunts. There's a scene where he ditches the bike and does like a controlled slide yep. and launches the bike at a box truck and like i said tip of my hat to him for doing all his own stunts but man for it to be that bad of a scene and to be that dangerous it must have been such a bummer for him watching it on the big screen because it's intercut with sandra bullock acting like a crazy person and trying to run old women off the road while she's doing her driving test so it's such a disjointed way to open the movie right no it, it really is it, it, it yeah Oh. So, and then the best scene is it is it the cruise crashing into the island or is it something else i loved i love these scenes in movies where the propeller is going so fast we need to put a chain into it or like a giant rope and we'll tangle it up that underwater scene of him being dragged just inches away from the yes. propeller as he's trying to pull a metal chain into it and the way that he catches um Django Fett when Django Fett gets thrown overboard. Yep. Awesome scene. Like that, awesome I mean, scene. corny, unbelievable, sure. Awesome scene, though. I loved everything about that action part. So, the, again, he, that's Jason Patrick doing his own stunts. I read that, you know, that was him with the fishing line being pulled that fast underwater with all the water coming onto him and, like, going underwater. You know, that's him and uh, – and Sandra Bullock as well. They talk about doing their own stunts. I think Sandra Bullock may have done not like 
one of the half of the stunts she did, but they both did their stunts and it was pretty terrifying. And seeing some of the stunts Jason Patrick did, you're just like, what? Yeah. I can't believe he agreed to do this. It's it was crazy. it was awesome. It's a great scene. It's a great, that's, it, it was one of the scenes, the one few moments in a movie where the villain has like golf club weapons and has no idea what's going on, where I was like, that makes sense. Like if you just throw a rope or an anchor into this propeller, surely it'll get tangled and stopped. Like I appreciated it and it was, it was well executed. Right. Right. No, I, I, uh, it, it's all those little moments. And I think, I think one of the funnier things, I think if we're going on to dialogue, I just found it so funny from a writing perspective to have that guy constantly narrate how many knots they're going like as a countdown. <laughs> But they also show it digitally too. Yeah, like they, as a, <laughs> they wanted to let you know that this ship was moving at a speed, and they beat it over your head at a slow speed for like twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> a slow speed, but also, audience, if you had any question as to what the exact precise speed of this ship was going, we're going to tell you three ways. Yep, we, we are going to tell you. And then when it stops, we're going to say zero knots. Yeah. <laughs> and drop the anchor. And drop the anchor. Oh, my God. My goodness. So is there anything else about this movie, like behind the scenes wise or dialogue that you want to, you, you feel like the viewers should know? I, I guess, is this the inappropriate? I, I, I don't want to cross any boundaries here, but the the deaf girl subplot. Yes, the deaf girl subplot. (laughs) It was such a strange, and I'm not casting any aspersions on the deaf community or anything, but there's a 20-minute subplot in this movie about a girl on this cruise who's maybe 8 to 10 years old, maybe a little older, who is deaf, signing with her parents. Jason Patrick, of course, understands sign language. That's how they try to humanize him. The little girl flirts with him in a very, very creepy manner twice. Yep. And I'm not yep. saying like throw away like, oh, that little girl has a crush on this older gentleman who saved her. Like, you should dump her. Dump Sandra Bullock and get with me from like a 10-year-old girl. is very off-putting. Um, and no reason for it to be in the movie. No, there wasn't. Like, there wasn't like a sign language thing that I remember to catch the bad guy or anything other than her dad just calling her a clown with how she dressed. (laughs) There was was zero, there was no arc to the family. There was no redemption. There was nothing at all except for this um, poor deaf girl to get trapped in an elevator and then to flirt (laughs) with Jason Patrick (laughs) in a very uncomfortable scene. And it added nothing to the film other than yeah, I, I, I had to, uh, that has to be mentioned because it was 15 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes of the movie was spent with this family, with the deaf girl, and it added 0.0 to this movie. <laughs> it did. I wonder if it was like somebody's cousin or daughter that was like, yeah, we need her in the, the thing. She's deaf. But it's just, wait, wait, great. Fine. That's what, get in there. Make your money. Be in a movie. That's awesome. Like if I had a daughter and she was in a terrible portion of any you know, big budget action movie, I'd be like, I don't care. Should it have been on the cuttering floor? Sure. But objectively sitting here, we didn't need this movie to be two hours and three minutes. We could have cut out that whole family subplot and maybe had a crisp little hour 45. 
Right? No, it would have been, must be, must be nice. (laughs) Must be nice. So we talked a little bit about before. So I'm fascinated with 80s and 90s action movies and the blatant, rampant homoeroticism that is through and through every one of the, I mean, from Top Gun to Commando uh, to even a little bit of speed and I think it's very evident in Speed (laughs) 2. Oh, yeah. Uh, Don't forget Point Break. And Point Break, for sure. Talk about favorite movies earlier. I mean, Point Break's on, I'm watching that movie. No, for sure, for sure. It is amazing. But I think there's a little bit in Speed 2 here, Cruise Control, where I don't fully um, think that Jason Patrick is interested in Sandra Bullock. I think he's more interested in Django Fett. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, there's there's that part of it, but I'm wondering if it's even even bigger, like social change, where um, in the late '80s through the '90s, we really fo- the the male characters and the director's gaze, if you will, always focused on these big, burly heroes that are going to come save you from these ridiculous situations, and then you flip it to the early 2000s or whatnot, you have your Transformers or you have these sorts of movies. It's like, it's all like skinny nerdy guys who are the heroes, but they always have a really hot girlfriend. Right. And that's what the camera focuses on. So, but I am a hundred percent with you. Like through the nineties, you think through Commando and all that, there are just scenes of Jason Patrick for absolutely no reason taking off his entire tuxedo to swim through the water and like flex. Yeah. And they focus on it. Yeah. No, they do. It oiled up, wet men, shirts off. And there's really no romance between him and Sandra Bullock. I feel like there's an actual kind of romance, not just bromance between Django Fett and Jason Patrick, how they're always saving each other and always giving each other the look. And I, oh, I feel and like... Well, it's- I mean, let's... Yeah. And that also goes back to, like, what we're talking about with maybe film evolving and all these new social issues but Sandra Bullock for how talented she is is obnoxiously underwritten underused and essentially an abused character in this script no and she 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 was hot as hell in this movie like she is gorgeous gorgeous and she is such an excellent actress and you know Watching Speed 2, there's a scene where she's underwater and she's being weighed down. It's like they did that in gravity, you know? And like, and I, and she, but she's horribly misused in this movie. But, you know, again, it's the 90s. She wasn't, she wasn't taking on the roles yet that, you know, she really has over the past 10 years. So it was, she's still kind of like, she was the ditz, she's the ditzy woman from Speed still, but amped in, in a swimsuit. Oh, yeah. But she had that. That's the thing. I don't know how people, she had that charm and she sold all of her lines, no matter how dumb and corny they were, but they couldn't figure out a way going back to your potential mid nineties homoeroticism between the camera and all the men in the movie. They couldn't find out a way for Jason Patrick to be charmed by her. <laughs> I know. It doesn't I was make charmed sense. by her. And I wanted to push her overboard because she was so annoying the way yeah. they wrote her. But, she was still magnetic on screen and they couldn't figure out how to use her. It was such a disappointment, especially going from her and Keanu had chemistry that just leapt off the screen. And yep. like you believed everything about them. And in this movie, 
Yeah, I don't think Jason Patrick actually liked her. <laughs> no, I don't think he did either. I just, oh, it's just so funny. Just him him going around, running around with weapons and trying to save the day shirtless or like his shirt open. That Because like, he looked ripped. Like, I don't remember him looking like that in Lost Boys, but holy shit, he looked good. <laughs> she even said it at one moment. What was her line? Um, where he went skeet shooting in the morning and she's like, couldn't take one day I was off from gun. He goes, you look so peaceful sleeping. And she was like, oh yeah, leave a bed with a naked woman in it. Yeah. And he's like, you know what, Sandra Bullock, good point. There you go. See, they, they, it's there. He I had to go not... shoot guns. He had to go shoot his man gun. <laughs> yes. That's very, oh my, see, it's there. See, people who don't believe me when you watch Top Gun in Commando, seriously go go see it go watch it again you'll you'll see my my vision in that which i think is great and hilarious is there any political or social commentary in this movie or is it really just about a crazy guy who wants to destroy himself and everybody <laughs> huge political this is where um uh pre-existing conditions debate actually started <laughs> <laughs> um, so if I could just get my CNN hat on real quick, uh, Geiger was fired because he came down with a disease by his company and they didn't want to pay for his medical care. <laughs> well, there's, oh, your, there's your political. Actually, I think that's what led to actually Obamacare could be traced back to speed two cruise control. If we ever get Barack Obama, we're bringing this up. Anyone, anyone in his entire orbit, we need to ask, have you seen speed two cruise control? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, you know what? You bring that up, and I'm very curious to go back and try to find interviews with the cast and crew, and if anybody brought that up. <laughs> anybody brought that point up. <laughs> just like, hey, that's, that's the new policy that Obamacare ran on. It's like, do you want another Geiger? <laughs> do you want another Geiger? Dude, dude lost ships. his mind. Yeah. We don't want cruise ships running into houses and <laughs> balsa wood buildings, do you? <laughs> wonderful so yes this movie is politically and socially charged <laughs> uh speed two cruise control all right uh final thoughts and would we recommend this because before before we get to that um this movie is actually kind of difficult to find if you are like myself or any of the number of uh, co-hosts I have on this. We love physical media. We're analog. We love Blu-rays. We love DVDs. We love 4Ks. This movie is very difficult to find on Blu-ray. Um, you can maybe find it as a double pack of Speed 1 and Speed 2, but if you are pressed to find it, uh, just a regular Blu-ray of just Speed 2 for less than $20, which my mind is boggled by that. <laughs> Hey, they know what the people want. You put the price point. This movie is just flying off the shelves. They could barely keep it on there. That's why it's so expensive. Yeah, I know, right? It's just, <laughs> it's crazy. So final thoughts and recommendation from Dan Moran on Speed 2 Cruise Control. Final thoughts. Fun movie. Very, very mid to late 90s. It obviously had nothing going for it as far as script goes, but I think that there are enough entertaining moments even if they're entertaining because they're so over the top or so corny or frankly in the case of killing him with the pixar lamp stupid i think that this is worth a watch if you can find if you can find it or if you have hulu i think it's streaming on hulu um give it a watch why not we just spent over an hour talking about it so obviously it's worth watching because we came up with an hour worth of things to talk about for it so 
yeah, give it a shot. Why not? It's it's a movie that's stuck in a time capsule of, of the late '90s. Like, they don't make movies like this anymore. <laughs> no, they don't. And like, I would say fifty-fifty. Like, some for good reasons and some not for good reasons. Like, I would rather watch something like Speed Two, like for practical effects and stunts, mm-hmm. but maybe shot better by a better director um because so much today there's so much cg and it takes you kind of out of the movie but here like it's practical and it looks good like you can't say that speed 2 doesn't look good visually maybe the editing wasn't really up to speed and of course the script and acting um wasn't but yeah i i would you know it's one of those like if you could watch it for free and it's late at night you have a few beers you know absolutely you're gonna laugh your ass off yeah it's worth a viewing it is worth a viewing for the fun nostalgia of a mid-90s ham-fisted sequel and you you're and you're shocked you're like fuck you know sandra bullock went on to be like oscar winning and just everything and jason patrick disappeared yeah. <laughs> like he could have been the next Tom Cruise. And <laughs> Sandra Bullock somehow is still a Hollywood queen despite this movie coming out right? during her rise to fame. No, for sure. Yeah. She has it. And maybe that says something about Jason Patrick. He might not be as charismatic and as fun as her. But, like, if you think about it, Jason Patrick did what Tom Cruise did later on like the ducati motorcycles his own stunts the ripped body like that he was tom cruise before tom cruise and jason patrick went nowhere right yeah it's unfortunate definitely it's definitely worth a watch and i agree if you can get a beer or two in you i think you'll enjoy it a lot more you might even enjoy it more i know everyone has to be social distance but if you have a friend if you have a roommate if your wife likes bad movies if your husband likes bad movies it's worth a late night watch with somebody so you can both kind of, you know, crack jokes about it. Do your own little mystery science theater, I think, would make it a very enjoyable evening. For sure, for sure. Speed 2, Cruise Control. Our first episode, Fear and Loathing in Cinema. We survived? Oh, my. Uh, we're, we're definitely going to be back for a second episode because this is just way too much fun. And we learned a little something today. <laughs> we, we, we learned, we laughed, we cried. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Dan, will you please tell the, the listeners out there where they can find you online? I am on Instagram. I'm going to get back on Twitter, so I'll have that <laughs> down the road. <laughs> but I am definitely on Instagram, Dan J. Moran, and I will uh, obviously be sending out all sorts of links to movie reviews that I write for Boomstick. And any time that we do anything with Fear and Loathing, look for it because it's yes. a fun project. For sure, for sure. We are the Multimedia Men Podcast Network. This is our new show. Fear and Loathing in Cinema. We are on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe, rate us, review us. We give away all sorts of fun Blu-rays. If we can find a copy of Speed 2, you best believe we'll be giving it away. (laughs) We'll be back next time, folks.